Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I have to be a different complete guy which is the guy who walked the walkways of St. Quentin's death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around, it was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much, but then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of these. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... <laughs> And this is the it's the fourth guy, right? Yeah. This is the fourth guy, yeah. Keith Daniel Williams, aka Danny. All right. Well, I'm Matt Ralston. And this is William A. Nogueira. And tonight we are continuing with our profiles of all uh, members of death row who have in recent history been executed at San Quentin prison. So we've made it to the fourth guy and that is Keith Daniel Williams. And uh, this guy is, I guess not very notable compared to other people that have been executed. He was the fourth one. So the sequence probably plays a part, but, um, there's just not much news about this guy on the internet. And the same thing is true in, on, on death row. He was not a very noticeable guy. Um, as you mentioned, there's not a whole lot of news about this guy. He was not a serial killer. He wasn't the first guy executed like uh, Robert Alton Harris. He wasn't William Bonning, the freeway killer. So there wasn't a whole lot of hoopla about this guy. And as his execution drew near, the only person really, well, not, that's, that's incorrect, not the only person, but one of the people who kind of stood up for him and, and said, you know, this guy, he's not getting a fair shake. He was my friend. And was another death row inmate named Stephen Aysworth. And I, I knew them both. And, um, I think he felt compelled because there wasn't much coverage about this death execution, um, death penalty coming up. So he felt compelled to write about it. And he did so and published it about his friend, um, Danny, as he called him. 
Yeah, he did. And he had a lot of good things to say uh, about, about Danny Williams. Um, you know, they're both convicted rapists and murderers. Um, but, you know, apparently, according to this guy, he did have a soft side. So what what was the two of their... Because I, I guess they were close friends. Um, so what was their profile in prison? You said they just blended in, didn't cause much trouble or get a lot of attention? Yeah, both the guys were first up on the shelf, which is narcissistic. That was the original death row in the past um, 75 years. That's where death row was housed at. And they were there. And then, of course, when East Block was opened and um, the population exploded on death row around 1982-83, they were, they came down from North Seneg. Actually, Stephen Ainsworth lived at that time on the fourth tier, which I'm on now, and I was right below him. And he was, um, he was known as a kind of a prison artist. He drew a lot of pencil drawings of executions of himself being executed he, he it was the constant theme in what he did and and daddy and him as he was known uh keith daniel williams was known as daddy they hung out together they pretty much just went outside there was they didn't lift weights they didn't run they didn't work out they sat down drank coffee and played cards that was their whole routine um by no standards of anybody's imagination could these guys be proclaimed as, you know, convicts or dangerous guys or anything like that in prison. They were basically just forgotten guys. They went outside, no one paid attention to them, and everybody just left them alone. Yeah, Ainsworth made a point in his writing to call Danny and himself criminals and and um not convicts. I maybe maybe you could talk about that distinction. Yeah, so you know to do that, you have to look kind of his, his career as a criminal. Um, Keith Williams was, you know, from nineteen sixty three to nineteen sixty six, his juvie record is extensive: it's burglary, auto theft, petty theft, shoplifting, assault. Um, nineteen sixty seven, he has his first rape. Um, 1971 through 75, he was in prison for forgery, auto theft, and again, assault. Right away in 1976, he goes back in for auto theft, possession of burglary tools. He gets out. In 1978, he goes back in again for kidnapping, assault with a deadly weapon, robbery, escape. And in 1979, murder. the, The murder he was ultimately executed for. But he's average. He's of below average intelligence. He doesn't really have any mastermind plans of taking over the world. He's not like some of these guys that come to prison and they're apex predators. They they want to rip off banks. They want to bigger, better uh, crimes. This guy was just barely making it. I mean, he um, he's ripping off campers and camping grounds. He's just a he's. There's nothing special about this guy. And the exact thing happens in prison because this society that I live in here, it's kind of like a micro version of of what happens out there. And 
neither one of these guys, just criminals. They weren't um, convicts or elite in any way. The both of them liked to be unnoticed. I think that was their their trademark in prison was just to be left alone and go about their own business. Should we go to the crime that found him on death row and maybe from there we can kind of rehash the relationship that he had with Ainsworth because I, I don't want to be too judgmental about it, but you know, apparently he had some redeeming qualities possibly, but uh, it's hard to square, you know, with what happened. Yeah, no, absolutely. The, um, the crime that found him on death row was, for, you know, for lack of a better word or, just to wrap your mind around what happened, you, you have to almost say that this guy wasn't thinking or he was just under the influence of drugs. I don't know because it's him and this guy named Tyson, his crime partner, Robert Leslie Tyson. Um, you know, they, they come across this, this camper, they break into it, they take things out of it, they take checks. Um, and the people that own the, the camper, uh, you know, confront them. They, the guy, William, shoots above their head, takes the stuff, and, and, and basically leaves. And that's how the beginning of this crime starts, because a few days later, and here's, this is what's really puzzling. He decides to have a yard sale with the items he stole from the camper just a few days earlier. And this is where the three victims, um, Michael Vargas, or Miguel Vargas, Salvador Vargas, and um, Lourdes Mesa come into the picture. They actually come to the yard sale. And um, it's there that they meet Danny, or Keith Williams. And he, you know, he offers to buy Miguel Vargas's car that he likes. There's a bit of back and forth. Uh, Miguel's interested in a Beretta that um, Danny Williams has. And they strike a bargain where Danny Williams is going to buy his car for $1,500. And he writes him a check. And he's going to wait to get the paperwork, the pink slip, um, until the the check clears. And this right here is just it shows just the the level of inexperience, of stupidity, I don't know what you want to call it, but the check that he writes him is a checkbook that he stole from the trailer. So how that's not gonna come back and bite him, I don't I don't understand that. But once he writes the check and the and Miguel Salvador and, and Lourdes leave, right away, um, Keith Williams begins talking about going back to get that check. He understands that check's going to lead right back to him. And Wait, he, he this is, I just, I want to make sure here, and this is rural uh, California, so these, these, you know, these are kind of country neighbors is how I'm picturing it. Um, he he gives he pays for the 
car with the check that he stole from the items that he stole from the guy who's selling him the car? No. He he writes a check that he took from the camper that he, that he broke into a few days earlier with Tyson, who's Robert Tyson, his crime partner in the murders. Okay. And at the yard sale, they're actually selling some of the items that he stole from the camper. And that's how he meets um, Miguel and his um, his brother, and of course, his brother's uh, girlfriend. And he decides to buy this guy Miguel's car, and he writes him a check with the check that he stole from the camper. Right. So if, it's good. Yeah, if, the, if this crime didn't happen, he would have been pinched within days or hours. Yeah, because he was writing checks, and it's just, it, that makes a, no sense at all, and it just shows the, the level of, of really of intelligence of this guy. So, it's just, a few moments later, he's already talking about, and he does mention the fact that these people are Mexican, and that he he wants to make them disappear, and that he wants to kill them, and he wants to go back to get that check. So, the following day, he and Robert Tyson go to the victim's Merced home. This is in Merced, California, which is, as you mentioned, a rural area, a lot of farmland, and the the, two, the three victims were living in a kind of a farmhouse. And um, when they get there, they find the three victims, Katie and, um, and Robert Tyson, but they have guests. One of the guests is Miguel and Salvador's uncle, and uh, Mr. Macias is there for a while. They're drinking a couple beers. And at one point, um, Keith Williams and his crime partner, Robert Tyson, pull out guns. And it's almost like they're going to do it. They're going to kill these people. But Robert Tyson makes kind of a joke about it. They put the guns away. Nothing happens. It's put off like a little joke. And then the other people leave. The other guests leave, including their uncle. And both Keith and Robert go out to the car, supposedly to go get more beer. Come back in, and right away, everything changes. This is when now it's going to happen. There are the three victims in the house. Um... Keith tells his crime partner to hold Miguel downstairs while he goes upstairs and he finds Salvador and Lourdes in their room. And when he bring, then he calls to his crime partner to bring Miguel upstairs. And when they're upstairs, that's when things start getting really bad. He wants the check from these guys. Uh, after getting the check that he wrote, they take Dolores downstairs and he shoots Salvador Vargas and Miguel Vargas twice in the back of the head and leave them there. And to further this thing, it's very multiple murder um, robbery, he decides to kidnap um, Lourdes. And they take her and they just start driving for hours. And here's where it gets a little fuzzy. Um, according to testimony, Danny Williams or Daniel Williams has sex with her. Uh, but 
during a kidnapping. So I don't see how this is not rape, but they end up taking her into a field and she's a witness to everything. Uh, they're afraid she's going to testify against them. And Keith Daniel Williams shoots her four times and leaves her in the field and they drive off. He leaves Robert at home and basically just disappears. So within hours, uh, their, their uncle, uh, Macias, calls the house because the um, Salvador and Miguel have not shown up at work. And they never do that. So he goes over there and he finds both his nephews dead. And within five days, they find Lourdes in the field. By this time, Robert Tyson and his wife, Karen Tyson, are getting skittish and they go to the police and tell them what happened. And it wasn't much longer that they um, picked up Keith Daniel Williams and he confesses doing it. Right. So he was found guilty of nine of 10 special circumstances, um, six murder convictions, robbery convictions, kidnapping, not of the rape, which is strange. I, I think I read that the body was a little bit decomposed and perhaps the jury just said nine out of 10 is good enough. Uh, I don't know. It's, I think we can't really clarify that, unfortunately. Well, you're right because in 1979, 78 DNA evidence, um, wasn't uh, a specialized field of today and they probably could not get DNA from her. And um, so, yeah, absolutely. Um, the special circumstances, um, which they charged him with, I think that's a mistake because there was only three murders, not six. So he was convicted of three murder charges, which is multiple murder. He was convicted of two robberies, one kidnapping, and the charge of rape was found to be not true. Um, and he, his defense was that he was guilty, but, but by reason of insanity. And the court ordered that two psychiatrists examine him, and they found him to be perfectly sane. So then the defense changed his tactics, and the theory of diminished capacity uh, was introduced to try and lessen the charges based on drug use, under the influence of alcohol. And he, according to him, he had been doing heroin, methamphetamines, alcohol, barbiturates. So that would, in his mind at least, or the defense in mind, would give him a good chance of being found of guilty, but with a diminished capacity, which would lessen the charges and probably take the death penalty off the table. The jury obviously did not buy that. They found him guilty of all three murders and all the special circumstances except the one. And he was sentenced to death. Yeah, and he was saying enough that according to his accomplice that when he got back into the car after shooting these people and kidnapping this young woman, he said, I love to kill. Um, so that shows that yeah, he knew exactly. what he was doing pretty clearly. 
Yeah, I don't think there's any question um, that he didn't know what he was doing. You know, when someone is drunk or heavily under the influence of drugs, they can still say things like, you know, I like ice cream or whatever. I, I, I don't know if that gives a a medical certainty as to his state of mind during the uh, uh, the crime spree. But you're right. I mean, it does show at least that he knew what he did because he says it. I love to kill or I like to kill. So, yeah, um, his crime partner, by the way, because he did testify and give the police a, a blueprint of who the person was that did it, and what his, um, what his uh, part was, they, he ended up receiving um, 25 years to life um, under the new law back then, um, which was first-degree murder. And he received three consecutive sentences of 25 years to life, which would have kept him in prison probably for the rest of his life. Hey, man, we're back. Yeah. Did you want to say anything out about... <clears throat> Let me reset. Goodness. Um, do you want to say anything else out, uh, about the special circumstances, or should we just keep going? Well, just that special circumstances are really unique, and it, it just depends on the circumstances the crime was committed and how they can attach it to somebody. It's always up to the DA's office to whether pursue the special circumstances or, or not to. Um, first-degree murder still carries 25 years of life. If you have three of them, um, it basically adds up to 75 years of life. With a gun enhancement, 27 years of life three different times. So, you know, you're talking about a lot of time, 81 years to life. No one's going to outlive that. Um, so in this case, they chose to go death penalty because of these, how many special circumstances there were. You know, multiple murder. And, and you're right, all, all special circumstances that are in the book for murder and to enhance murder to have a death penalty or life without possibility of parole sentence are usually studied very carefully by the DA's office in order to charge and make sure they can make these things stick. Um, in this case, it was not very difficult because they were they had a witness to everything, which was his co-defendant, that gave um, a blueprint of exactly what happened, how it happened. But even further, he gave the reason why it was done. And that um, sealed his fate in this circumstance. Right. So he arrives on death row. He quickly becomes friends with Stephen King Ainsworth, who, coincidentally or not, the reason he's on death row is for a very similar crime. He was in Sacramento, uh, waited in a parking lot with a buddy, abducted this woman, shot her in the leg, kept her in the car, um, for a while driving around drinking beer, was having a good time, I guess, and uh raped her and discarded her body in uh in a field. It's they're pretty similar. They are they were similar as you mentioned their crimes being similar. There were similar guys, uh both Caucasians, same attitude, same type of um I guess if you want to call it easygoing manner. They just wanted to get along. They didn't want to attract attention. And I believe the reason they didn't want to attract so much attention was because they knew the position they were in. 
neither one of these guys was considered a snitch or a tattletale. So they, they didn't feel they, they had to go to a protective custody yard. However, the rapes in their record would have gotten them killed had the guys on the yard known about it. You have to remember, this is, this is 1979, 1980, early 80s. There is no internet. It's very difficult to find out why people are in prison. And uh, a guy like Danny, if someone did ask him for his paperwork, he would obviously show it very quickly. And there is no rape charge there. It's a, there's no rape con- conviction. So no one's looking at his paperwork. They see robbery, they see burglary, they see kidnapping. They think, huh, a regular guy. Of course, I believe the reason they didn't want to be his attention was for that reason. If someone dug deep enough, they find a rape from 1967, and Ainsworth, they find that he was a rapist, that he killed the woman that he uh, abducted. That alone would have got him, at the very least, stabbed and taken off the yard. But they didn't go out very often. They moseyed out every once in a while, drank coffee, played cards, and then disappeared again. And no one paid attention to them because, as I said, they didn't bring attention to themselves. So the way I had always imagined this until you just said something a few moments ago was that when prisoners are sizing sizing up other prisoners to decide who to kill or assault, that they know the person is a rapist because of something they saw on TV or simply through word of mouth that someone else was in jail with him or at another prison for rape or that they know someone in common because a lot of these people are from the same area or whatever, but you're saying a prisoner might actually ask another one to produce his paper record, or did I get that wrong? Absolutely. When you walk on to a death row yard, they usually ask you, or any prison at the level four, what are you here for? And the whole, it's none of your business doesn't fly. You get pressed, especially if you're, um, if you're that same person's race. If you're Hispanic, the Hispanics ask you, if you're a Caucasian or white, the whites ask you. Because they don't want anybody in their car. What I mean by a car is their group that has those type of cases. They don't want that guy near them. So they always ask for paperwork or by word of mouth, they ask. And some of these guys, funny, <laughs> this is not funny, but on the yard, there is at least, I don't know, 30% of these guys know each other from youth authority, from other prisons. It's strange that a lot of these guys, the majority of these guys know each other from other prisons, from Juvenile Hall, from YA, and they pretty much know who these guys are. So they either vouch for themselves or they point out that this guy has that type of case. And if nothing else, they just ask the guy, tomorrow when you come out, bring your paperwork with you. It's that simple. Wow. Yeah, you're pretty screwed at that point, which is probably why you shouldn't going around raping and killing people. Um, that's interesting, though. It's almost like a little passport that you have. That's exactly what it is. That paperwork that you have is your passport. You either go outside or you don't go outside. Some guys that people have asked for their, their paperwork, they say, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll bring that tomorrow. They never show up again. We never see them again. Wow. And then, of course, the conversation is, <laughs> I wonder what that guy has in his jacket. And it's, 
I mean, I know, I know it sounds brutal. It sounds, but this is the way things are in prison, at least on a normal prison yard where people, they don't want a bunch of creeps around them or rapists or child molesters or child killers. They want to make sure the guy next to him is a convict. And if push comes to shove, he's going to back him up or whatever the case may be. It's interesting because you and I have had this conversation, you know, back when they had weights on the yard, I would be out there working out with a guy next to me and I had to know everything there is to know about that particular guy. Because if in prison, if there's a war on the yard, and I mean a racial war, you have to know who's next to you, where his loyalties land. That's why usually people of the same race work out together. Actually, it's mandated. You'll never see on a level four yard a Hispanic guy working out with a, I don't know, a different race that's not his. Same thing with his, with, with whites. Same thing with African Americans. They work out together because at the end of the day, they can only trust the color of their skin. Right. So these were both actually pretty creepy looking white guys. Uh, Williams was a bald guy, fat mustache, but just looked really serious and like a killer. And the other guy, Stephen King Ainsworth, there's only one photo of him on the internet, but it's, uh, it's kind of chilling. Cause he just, you know, I understand that certain people look like this and it's just genetics but this guy just looks like if you asked me to describe a rapist, what he would look like. And it, he's a skinny guy with weird bags under his eyes and a mustache. And, you know, it doesn't help either that he fancies himself some kind of, I don't know, great American writer. And he's sitting around writing these short stories, which I wouldn't look twice at, except that I know they were written by a rapist. So he's saying things like, Quote, as she moved towards me, we touched noses. The children stared with quizzical looks at me, all covered with blood. As I lay dying, she told them of the dangers that lurked in the world beyond, and where the hare's place was just above that of the taste of the sweet willow's buds. Okay, whatever. Um, He's talking about hunting, I think. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, you got me on that one, but... You know, there's a lot of, a lot of guys in prison attacking themselves, writers, what have you. You know, the, the the joke in prison is that you can be anybody you want to be in prison. You can make it up guys lie about who they are, what they are, but you can never hide who you truly are from another convict. Stephen Ainsworth, Keith Williams couldn't hide who they were. For the benefit of the doubt, what Ainsworth said about this guy, he made a lot of excuses for him, basically. He wrote um, a tribute to him, an obituary. I don't know what you call it, but at age nine, he became a ward of the state. Um, Apparently, Ainsworth at one point had a meltdown, asked the guards to shoot him and set his cell on fire. And uh, Williams was very supportive of him during that difficult time. And... He says that Williams is part of these programs that youth offenders would come in and that Danny Williams was always incredibly kind to them, telling them not to go down the road that he went down. 
and to, you know, not act out your sociopathic tendencies and stay in school. And he made a point to say he would do that no matter what race they were, which I thought was a weird point, but maybe he'd just been in prison too long. Um, but I found this hard to make a lot of sense of because it is kind of a heartfelt tribute to a good friend of his. Um, but it's also, it's hard, it's hard to, it's hard to write a tribute to someone like that with a straight face, you know? Well, um, you're, you're right in, in, in this sense, in this sense, you have to understand that Stevie Hainsworth obviously thought of this guy as a brother, as a friend, as a guy who looked out for him when he needed help. Look, ask anybody's mother who's on death row. He could be a rapist, a child molester. And that guy's mother's going to tell you that she remembers the little boy that he was, how much she loved him, how much he loved her, all the good things he did. Look, I'm not knocking that every person has good qualities. I'm sure that if they asked, uh, you know, William Bonney, his, his commanding officer would rave that he, under fire, went into the, the helicopter and saved two uh, airmen. Does, are there qualities to every person that can be attributed to kindness, goodness, uh, gentle soul? Probably. Everybody has a side to them. And I think that uh, Stephen A's word because he, he genuinely felt this guy to be a friend of his, he was defending him. He was writing something where people would hear at least the other side of him. Um, does it make up for what he did? Absolutely not. There's, it's really hard for me to sit here because I'm in a situation and bang on someone. But look, the listeners want fairness. They want the truth. They want, and by the way, the truth is the bully we all pretend to like. Because when people are honest about these things, the me and the, oh my God, what we know, oh, why are you saying that? The truth is, you have to be honest. And Stephen Ainsworth genuinely felt for this guy. But a little bit too late, and the things that he said about him helping kids, that's great. It's absolutely great. But it comes from another person who understood him because he was also a rapist. So I don't know how much weight you can give to it. Maybe Stephen at some point was thinking that maybe he can get some play by writing about it and people would discover how great of a writer he was. Always have to look at that part of it, right? A little bit of ego. We might have to pause for a minute. I'm monitoring the situation, but I don't know if you heard that police chopper out there and it seems to be buzzing by i just went out on my balcony it seems to kind of be buzzing by every few minutes um matt they've discovered you they're coming for you (laughs) this will definitely be our most listened to podcast if i uh, get taken away live live on the air that would be fantastic you can erase that uh yeah i mean people you know youtube personalities do publicity stunts all the time uh maybe they arrested some rapist hold on let me go back on the balcony and see where Stephen Ainsworth also as you mentioned is a writer and he wasn't getting that much play on his writing he probably wrote this 
um, people would listen to it, people would re- discover him maybe. And the truth is, here we are. How many decades later? 25 years later? And you and I are talking on it on a podcast about Stephen Ainsworth. So maybe that was in his mind. Maybe he wasn't as dumb as I thought he was. But then, the same token, I'm one of those guys that I see things how I, I call things that I see them. I'm, I'm a no-nonsense guy, been in prison for a very long time. And some would even call me a conservative in some ways. And uh, I have a friend who's married to a police officer. She was once married to a convict. She's told me on a number of occasions, cops and convicts, same guy, the same person, both conservatives, both opinionated. And I guess I kind of follow suit there. I'm a little hard on the people I talk about. But I think the audience wants to hear the truth. They don't want to hear things wrapped in flowers. They want to hear what really people think and say on these yards. And since I'm on these yards, this is exactly what's being said about these guys or was at the time. And the proof is the night that he was executed at five that morning, the guys want a yard. They didn't care. Like, you know, we don't care about this guy. Just let us out the yard. There was no somber mood. There was no, you know, we're next. No one cared. The only thing on people's minds is can we go out to the iron pile and lift weights. There was nothing. Yeah, May 3rd, 1996. And we touched on it at the beginning, but there must have been a media presence there still. This was the fourth one. And, you know, the media can be kind of fickle. But um, what was the scene like before that? Or was it really almost routine at that point? With him, it was kind of routine. As I said, there was nothing special about this guy. There was nothing that brought the media attention to it, but the media was here. Those people who were against the death penalty and those for the death penalty, believe me, they were parked outside and they were making noise about it. But on the road, there was no like feeling like there was the first one or the, the first three. This one seemed, it felt different. And uh, as I mentioned, I was here. I was 10 feet from where I'm sitting now. And the mood was not that serious. Of course, someone was being executed, but no one seemed to really care. The guy didn't have a lot of friends, wasn't a real stand-up guy on the yard, wasn't considered a convict. Only the people very close to him, which are very few, Stephen Ainsworth is probably one of the only few ones, no one really cared. And it's, I stayed in my mind all these years. I remember thinking that night, huh, it's getting easier. That's what I thought. It's getting easier to kill these guys. Yeah, so I was trying to think if if a prisoner, if someone on death row had arrived later than you, and maybe this was the first person that they had been there for them being executed, that maybe it would have affected that kind of small population as well. But the fact is everyone knew about it from the media and was just familiar with the situation when it happened with you the first time it was it was actually the first time right yeah absolutely and he was one of the original 12 on death row 
he was one of the original guys that got here first. Um, so of course, not a lot of people knew him, but it was the, there's a lot of guys here that were here as long as he was, but everybody knew who they were because they were very, um, the word isn't popular, but they had a presence here. He did not, although he lived here. Yeah, and it's the fourth one. I mean, people, it's just natural, you know? There's nothing inherently interesting about the fourth person being killed. Even when you're at the third, it's still a novelty. Um, but he was given a lethal injection. He had no final words before that. His last meal was fried pork chops, a baked potato with real butter. He made a point to stipulate that, apparently. Asparagus, salad with blue cheese, dressing, apple pie, and whole milk. So um, basically a real country corral uh, feast there. But yeah, so he was just gone. And then the following day, business as usual for the most part. Business as usual. They ran, it actually was very shocking because when they, they executed Robert Alton Harris, when they executed Mason and also Bonnie, uh, we didn't have yard the next day. There were still, uh, the administration at San Quentin was very leery as to what the response was from the men on death row, which I, I can tell you because I was here, no one was going to do anything. No one cared. When this guy's executed, at 5.15 a.m., they announced yard release. All inmates going to yard, bring out or set their things to the side, prepare for yard. They start, they start hanging cuffs because they cuff you before you go to yard. and You remain cuffed until you get to the yard. Everyone was shocked. But and as I said, my words were, huh, it's getting easier. Yeah, and maybe that was the... Maybe that was the message they were trying to send also. I don't know. Who knows? Probably not. I really think it had to do with the person. Because as we will discuss in the chapters or the episodes that are coming up, there are some um, convicts that are executed that brought a huge response from the media and from the population on death row. So I believe it has everything to do with the person being executed. And, um, yeah, even, even the execution itself, there was no drama. They march him in there, in there at 12.03, they, they, they put the, the needle in his arm, and by 12.08, he's dead. There's no last words, there's no um, you know, last-second appeals, there's no state execution. There was Robert Alton Harris, there was like, you know, three executions, like the Supreme Court had stepping at the last minute today, no more, no more stays. Nothing like that happened. It was just like business as usual. You know, get him in there, get him out there. Goodbye. Well, he's gone, and we'll uh, we'll be back next week with a story of another condemned prisoner who was executed while you were there, and uh, we'll just keep going through these stories. So. Uh, unless you have anything to add, I'm Matt Ralston. And this is William A. Nogueira for Death Row Diaries. By the way, next week we will be reviewing Tommy Thompson. And he is the fifth person that was executed in San Quentin by lethal injection.
Tell a friend about the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram, Death Row Diaries, and Facebook, Death Row Diaries. But most importantly, just tell someone you know to listen to the show. It's really the only podcast co-hosted live from Death Row. Plus, you know, it's good. <laughs>